Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hello, my dear friend Micah. It is I, back from the dead of COVID. Arisen, thankfully. We're very happy. I'm very grateful that last week we had that interview that you did with Libby. Mm-hmm. And then this past weekend was our workshop, which somehow you and Alini just held that shit down. It was really fun. You guys did great. It was an amazing time. Alini is a rock star. Alini Cowrie, if you don't know her, she's just it's an absolute powerhouse of knowledge about all things vectoring, letter forms, vectoring anything and mastering that tool in Illustrator. So we had such a great time. We're so excited to see what other projects she has coming up. I know she has a workshop with the Letterform Archive, but just so glad to grow our league community one person at a time here. Pretty heckin' great, if you ask me. And I'm grateful that while I was dying, you ran a whole flipping workshop. I want everyone to picture Micah on like a Victorian deathbed. <laughs> Very dark, moody, cobwebs in the corner. With sad classical music playing in the background. For sure. Yeah. And I'm I'm in a suit. Yes. But deathly ill. Naturally. <laughs> right. That fits my personality. Well, I'm very thankful you're back. Thankful your health is okay. Thankful I don't have to run this podcast by myself forever because <laughs> that would be spooky scary for sure. All right. So today our nerd alert is going to be a fun one. We are inspired by a really unconventional way to market a typeface and to advertise it. I think we're going to do a little reveal at the end what that was. Um, But it got us thinking to all the ways that type is marketed to the masses, to the designers, to the nerdy designers. So we're going to share some of the places we've seen fonts marketed and what that means for people selling fonts and consuming this media. So I think it's going to be a fun one. Yeah, it'll be a little bit of uh, intellectual conversation mixed with like If you've ever thought about getting your typeface out there, maybe inspire a couple ideas from just avenues you hadn't thought of. Yeah. And with that, I'm very excited about the article we got going on today to start us off. It's from XYZ Type, the Foundry XYZ. And it is an article breaking down the process of designing the new Rolling Stones logo that looks kind of like the old Rolling Stones logo. <laughs> Rolling Stone, not Rolling Stones. Sorry for my music nerds. I should have gotten some kind of like intense guitar sound to mix in here. I didn't think of it ahead of time. I know. And Rolling Stone, the magazine. I feel like I have to qualify everything I just said. The new Rolling Stone <laughs> logo for the Rolling Stone magazine that looks kind of like the old Rolling Stone logo. Really interesting article. Okay, so I was initially really fascinated by this logo reconstruction because I've spent a lot of time at JKR taking away strokes and drop shadows to logos because of the outdated nature associated with those effects. And this is the first time I've seen a logo released in the past couple of years that, in fact, adds in the complexities of a triple stroke I'm pretty sure, on these letters with shading that includes line shading. I was like, okay, I need to know the story behind this. This article shows the whole evolution of the Rolling Stone logo starting in the 60s up until now. 
And I think there was really a desire for it to have the gravitas that it had when it had that kind of shaded vintage look, but they wanted the flexibility of a logo that comes out in 2022. So like can downsize really easily, have some really crisp, sharp features. And so basically the new logo, there's a really great diagram of how it it has taken the best parts of the 2018 logo, of the 1981 logo, of the 1977 logo, and combined them all for this new refined piece. It's really hard to find where things get really distinct from the past logos. Again, it's an evolution. It's not a total reconstruction at all. But like simple tricks like making the drop shadow less deep helps not make the line shading too complicated where the letters are overlapping. They took the really strong, confident S of the 2018 logo and carried that over into the shaded world, which helps with the balance. I mean, this is some super type nerd stuff. This is really you're in the weeds. You're looking at the terminals of these letter forms, of the weight, of like really fine details. But my favorite detail is actually... Them making the logo, Jesse Reagan, who was the designer of this at XYZ, creating a small size version of their logo. And they do this really great comparison. So they make this complex, ornate logo for the magazine. Obviously needs to work in small sizes. So they show what that complex logo looks at a small size. And it's really muddy. And you can tell it was not meant to be scaled down to two inches long. And then they show this really small size optimized logo that still keeps the shading. And I think a lot of the general personality of this new logo and puts it at a crisp size. And it's just like a great reminder how designing for a small size optimization does makes such a difference. And it's actually a skill to be able to keep a lot of that personality into something that is so tiny. So yeah, that's kind of my take on the whole thing. Just super interesting, nerdy article, not anything that's going to feel like a total reconstruction of the brand, but interesting to see an article about a tiny, tiny evolution. What I also appreciated was, if you kind of follow along with the timeline written in the article, they really describe why they did each iteration just in a sentence or two, but it's still nice. It's like you get to a certain point in following the history of this thing where you're like, like the one that I think most of us are familiar with started in 1981 and lasted to 2018, which I'm no math expert, but my calculator says that's 37 years of the same logo, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. And then they were like, we had to update it a little bit. And so we tried this flat version and then this most recent iteration was basically like, yo, we tried the flat version for like four years and we kind of felt like we were missing something, which is just a a nice thing to admit. Mm -hmm. Especially brand redesigns always come with this hyperbolic description of, you know, we were trying to invoke this feeling and hark back to the days of this and blah, blah, blah. And they're basically just like, we tried to minimalize it. It didn't work that well. So we're going to go back and just make it better. Yeah. Nice, brave, bold move, especially in a world where everyone's trying to strip all the ornament back. I feel like everyone's trying to make their logo look retro, but then also super clean and minimal. Like the most Mm. clean, minimal version of a retro logo. I think it's described that in 2022, the CEO of the magazine felt the visual identity had lost its signature audacity. I think that's really (laughs) interesting that flattening a logo could really do that to a brand. A nice find on the internet this week, I think. Indeed. 
good find. A great find coming up next as well is from Creative Boom, and the article is titled, Janine Heinrichs, Grunge Typography Posters, Prove You Don't Need a Degree to Be a Graphic Designer. This was like a very just inspiring story about this graphic designer, Janine. She's Canadian. She was searching for work as a designer in May 2020. She didn't have a degree, but she had taken a three-month intensive course with Shillington in New York, which we applaud Shillington. That's where I think Steph got her design education as well. So it's not like a full degree, but it's like a lot of intensive design work to like get you going on the right path. But she was struggling to find the right opportunities. It was a pandemic. So instead, she created this project, 365 Days of Grunge Typography Posters, where she, for, I guess, 365 days, which is actually insane, committed (laughs) to making a poster, I believe every day, and posting her process and her work on TikTok and Instagram, where she built a collective following of over 150,000 followers and indeed got opportunities through this project. And I think... She says some interesting stuff about, I had an inbox full of exciting design simply because I was able to overcome perfectionism and effectively market myself on social media, which interesting tie-in to the theme of this episode. But I also think it's inspiring. I looked at the TikTok that she's posted her work on. She often posts some of the process of how she gets to some of these grunge filter looking things and that her technical craft for a lot of this is incredibly impressive and probably has grown to this refined skill because she just committed herself to the project every freaking day. Yeah, that's wild. I don't, I mean, I just can't imagine it. I can't even imagine doing that myself. I know part of the message here is like, her saying like, hey, if I could do it, anybody can do it, which is nice. And I appreciate that. But also like, that's a lot. That's so much. It's a lot. Where the heck do you get all these ideas from? I know. I have a lot of ideas. I don't think I have that many ideas. I feel like that she does some really nice copywriting. It's a really big range of designs. I think some are more successful than others, but I think it's the sheer quantity that shows that she's like really keeping her creative brain really nimble and is also encouraging because she found a really unconventional way to kickstart her design career and it clearly has paid off. Yeah. And I love the messaging of that on her site too. Like it's linked at the bottom of the article, janinedesignsdaily.com. <laughs> and uh, the manner isn't like, hey, I'm Janine. Here's my stuff. Hire me. It's become a graphic designer without a degree in arguably kind of like a crappy looking header. Yeah. yeah. Which is the point. And her, my story section uh, is very charming, very full of her personality of like quirkiness. It seems I like it. It's a good message. It's great. Definitely check out her Instagram. I just think it's interesting. I'm always asking people how they feel about Instagram as a creative. And this makes me feel a little bit happy. Like someone's, used it in a really effective way to show off their work. And it's really a gallery now for all of the things she created, which is just feels very effective and nice and definitely worth checking out. Yeah, I like it. All right. This next article is going to scratch the itch for that digital design learning. And I really like this article. As someone that has a little bit of knowledge about CSS and HTML, I actually was able to follow along really well, even though 
I don't use that stuff every day. That's great. And it's titled Designing for Long-Form Articles, all about how we could craft the design of a long-form article on the web better and better to make it a really successful design piece. I think there's some really interesting metaphors that they compare long-form article designs to. First off, I love the quick wins section at the very beginning of this article talking about, okay, let's say you're really starting from scratch. It's just basic HTML, nothing stylized. What can you do from the get-go to just get things starting to be fine-tuned? Not even talking about what kind of font you choose. It's like talking about characters per line, font size, line height, all that good stuff. And after they kind of get that out of the way, they start getting into the details. I loved also the section that comes after that, called Design for Extra Breathing Room. And they talk about this above-the-fold real estate, which I remember learning when I was briefly doing visual design for the web. And it's all about, they compare above-the-fold design to beachfront property in the web world, which I've never heard it compared (laughs) to that, which is just funny, where you're trying to pack in your high-value things. So I think about the New York Times homepage, like, You have the biggest headlines, you have like all sorts of stuff, what they want you to read the moment you click on that page and it loads. And above the fold, they also say could be compared to like a dense urban downtown with high traffic and high rise buildings. But once you actually get into the articles, articles are quite different and it's a much more time-based experience. Um, And it's the opposite of some of the above the fold design thinking where it's more about a less is more approach and to make really meaningful design choices in the details. And with that, they start talking about subtle design choices that lead to a better experience. The first one being adjusting your underline positioning and weight to match that of the typography so it doesn't feel like it's default. And then all these other ways to allow you to think beyond the default of setting text on the web. And I just really enjoyed that. What about you, the the resident digital designer here? (laughs) I agree. I think the quick wins is great. When we say basic stuff, it's some of the stuff you learn first, but it's also the stuff that you have to repeatedly do every single time. So that's a good reminder of why the default font size should be this recommendation and characters per line so that it's easier to read and and line height for similar reasons. Those are good starting points. And the rest is kind of just trying to illustrate that and get creative on top of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because the underline example that shows up first that you were just talking about, we didn't used to have that kind of control in CSS of that kind of stuff. And so it's neat that that's just like a basic option of CSS now, where a few years ago that didn't exist. In general, I agree with the above the fold thing. And interesting that they didn't mention that The fold comes from newspapers, right? right? But I guess that's just not the modern world that we live in that much anymore. And I struggle with that because a lot of projects I've worked on where somebody else was the designer or there was some creative director type person who was obsessed with above the fold. There's always like a a push and pull of we are so used to scrolling that above the fold isn't as important as a lot of people think that it is. But it is also like your first impression, like you load up the page, whatever you see first is your first impression. Mm-hmm. And so with the web, it's tough because there is no discrete fold. Everybody's looking at things on a different monitor with different resolutions. 
there's in a way no way to anticipate that from a creative perspective you can anticipate it with code and have the design be responsive to different sizes and whatnot but you can't really if you're thinking of the psychology of the design of a website you can't anticipate what screen size somebody's going to be looking at it on and so it's a little fruitless to say that there is a fold but at the same time it gets you thinking about hey for a long form article you have to pull me in first yeah you have to make it attractive make me want to dive into it because it's like a burden to read a long thing yeah and so you gotta jazz me up in the beginning to make me want to Absolutely. I think that's basically all they're all they're trying to give you creative ideas for, which is good. Yeah. I love a good artful above the fold thing. Get me something that pulls on my emotional strings so I will look at this long block of text, which I hope is well designed afterwards. Because if it's not, no one's gonna read it. Right. Good lessons. Quick tips. Our next article comes from Undercase Type, and this is a resource, actually, not necessarily an article. And that resource is a guide to sinistral hand. So you come across this link, you see this really broad, bold, calligraphic type or lettering that is a guide to sinistral hand set in. And it kind of reminds you of like Hebrew, it's a reverse contrast. So I'll just set the stage there. But then when you read it, you find out that Phaedra Charles, who developed a sinistral hand, developed this when she was at Cooper Union and at the Type at Cooper program. And when attending the program, you have to practice calligraphy, like in a lot of type design practices. And the calligraphy was designed for right-handed people. Like totally, I can tell you that from doing calligraphy myself, from seeing left-handers struggle in some calligraphy classes, trying to figure out ways they could form the letter forms in a way that felt organic to their actual dominant hand. Um, And so Phaedra developed sinistral hand and um, drawing inspiration from other writing systems, not necessarily the Latin ones calligraphically. So other writing systems like Hebrew and Devangari. um, She developed this new writing system and she published a booklet. And now the booklet is free and available and you can get your own guide to sinistral hand. I love that it's like called sinistral hand because it's like a nod to just like the subversiveness of being left-handed, which shouldn't be that subversive. Like there's a lot of left-handers out there. And I think it's like a cool resource and a way to think about letters in a totally different way. Someone that practices calligraphy, I can only imagine the struggles of trying to do this with the hand that the system was not built for. Yeah, honestly, I never even thought about it. So this is like mind-blowing to me. It makes perfect sense. I just have the pleasure of being right-handed, so I never had to think about it. And how privileged to be right-handed, you know? Like, I never Uh thought about it. Bonkers. Exactly. I do really appreciate the style of education in this booklet. Oh, yeah. The illustrations and the little arrows and numbers that it's good for describing calligraphy and typography, but really useful to be thinking of it from a different perspective that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. The letters are weird, but interesting and totally turns your head on some of the way, uh, you know, we typically construct letters, but there's also a very, there's a really nice logic to it all too. And really inventive forms that could inspire other typographic projects. It is like surprisingly readable, which is probably sounds like an insult, but I mean, 
obviously she knows what she's doing. <laughs> she's very talented and skilled. It feels like it should be difficult to read when you see it large. And then she sets the whole book in it. And you're like, oh, that's actually extremely readable. Good freaking work. Right. Exciting stuff. Just keep us ever inspired over here on the weekly typographic. All right. On our toes. With that, we are ready to head into this nerd alert. Okay. <laughs> should I give away the inspiration for the nerd alert now? Or yeah, I we... think so. Okay. I think it's a good intro. Over the summer, I was like, what? is this article. So it's nice that also we link to the article in the newsletter, but it's nice that I put out this article um, in July and it's titled, can you spot gorilla adverts for the new Rafa typeface at these major cycling events? And I was like, what is going on? I'm so confused. But then I read on and found out that commercial type, um, type foundry darling was asked to create a typeface for the cycling brand is it Rafa? Rafa? I don't know. I'm going to say Rafa, like the American I am, but someone can correct me. I would gladly, <laughs> sure. gladly like to know the name of it. And so they were commissioned to create, you know, a typeface for Rafa. And then they actually decided to have it live on in other ways. So Rafa Sands and Rafa Serif were the corporate typefaces that were designed. But now I believe they're part of the commercial type library wait we should specify that like rafa rafa whatever it is is like a cycling brand of clothing right yeah do they make clothing or do they make bikes too oh gosh i mean their website describes it as the world's finest cycling clothing and accessories okay so perfect we're gonna go there definitely catering towards the bike world so with that in mind commercial type did printouts of Frame Bold, Frame Serif, and I believe Caslon Doric as well. And they printed out these typefaces with just the name of the typeface set in the typeface itself on fluorescent yellow poster. And it's interesting because commercial types Paul Barnes explains that, okay, we thought that the background of the poster should be like really luminous, especially if the weather was overcast and would stand out. But also like the way that the type was designed, I guess it worked really well on signs as well. The robust serifs and all that had like a really nice place in this marketing scheme. And so they had people stand with these placards at the Tour of Flanders and the Paris Roubaix, try my best for that French cycling competition. They were just like totally in the middle of all the onlookers cheering on these crowds and they just like weird signs. And according to Rafa's PR person or whoever was responding to the event, they said that the onlookers were both curious and bemused. And a lot of these placards were captured by professional photographers that came to the event to capture some of the work and it was on tv screens too so like this weird gorilla campaign that just has typeface names on it was actually getting like getting a lot of exposure in this like super unconventional way i mean now that i've dove into the background of this which wasn't immediately apparent like you really have to read the article to understand what the heck we're talking about here the point was that this cycling brand hired commercial type to make new fonts for their brand, right? Mm -hmm. And then because it's a font foundry, 
you know, there was probably some period of exclusivity and then it's still theirs. So they're allowed to sell it themselves. So they gave it a new name and then advertised that quote unquote independent font that they're now selling for themselves mm-hmm. at cycling events. Yes. That was the guerrilla marketing here. Yes. Thank you. We always need Which your concise. weird. <laughs> like, yeah. what the heck? Yeah, no, it was weird when I was saying it. And now I'm like on the listening side of things. And it's like, this is weird. But also marketing type at a cycling event to the masses. It did get press. I'll say that. I know about Frame Sarah from Frame Sans existing as being someone interested in the type world. But it also just makes me think, like, when else am I going to be at some random unrelated event? and see a typeface being advertised to me. I want to know. My problem with this is like, you don't know what you're looking at. I mean, it's for sure marketing to the wrong people. I don't know how you would debate that. They're not trying like bicyclists and bicyclist enthusiasts are not because of that categorization interested in buying fonts. Mm -hmm. They might in their day job be a designer and Mm -hmm. thus would be interested in buying the fonts. But so like, The advertising here was, in my mind, just a weird stunt that was funny. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that that just happened to, like, catch some steam, which eventually would land in front of some of the people who might actually buy the font. Yes. This is a very niche event that they were participating in. Um, The only closest thing I've seen to this on the streets of New York was that earlier this year, I think in April, Commercial Type did a wheat pasting campaign around New York and LA, I believe, where wheat pasting is those huge posters, they're like 24 by 36, that literally get pasted up on construction buildings or scaffolding around New York um, and other urban areas. And I remember walking down the street in Manhattan, seeing like a huge series of all their fonts. And it was like a month or two before typographics. Not saying like anyone else in the city besides type nerds know about typographics, but there's a lot of designers in New York. Maybe one in 600 people might know potentially what that could be about, the commercial type <laughs> stuff. And like, is that successful? Or is it commercial type trying to satisfy something in their perception of how they want to be perceived as a foundry when there's like a designer, maybe once a day, a designer sees this, posts something about it, being like, did you guys see this? This is crazy. It's so weird. Like, why is there a font advertisement on the side of the street in the middle of Manhattan? In that way, one slight difference with this wheat pasting campaign, mm-hmm. which thank you for explaining, because before you, I didn't know what wheat pasting was. Oh, okay, good. Um, <laughs> like, I had seen the byproduct of it, but didn't know that name. Was at least on these posters that they're plastering up, it has their website attached mm-hmm. as opposed to this other article where it's, it's literally just the name of a font on yellow with no other context. So at least if you were like, what is that? You could visit the website and then you'd be like, oh, it's selling fonts. Okay. And then you decide whether you're interested or not. I guess I agree that in the context of New York City, where there is surely a high population of designers I don't know the statistics on that, but it has to be true, right? Because there's a huge population and Mm -hmm. a lot of businesses that require designers in New York, right? So that to me seems like a crazy waste of money to just Mm. like show everyone money and effort, right? I guess to show everyone in hopes that one of those 
500 people or whatever passing by as a designer and wants to share it to their designer friends. That's mm-hmm. like a real shotgun approach to marketing, which I guess maybe not specifically money and effort, but it's an inefficient approach to marketing it. It's like, yeah, it's a fair descriptor. Because I don't know how much it costs. I don't know how hard it was to get that to happen. Yeah, same. So money and effort, unsure, but certainly inefficient to show 500 people in hopes that one person would be in your target audience. So for that reason, it blows my mind. Why? What the heck? You guys are crazy. But I guess it also kind of worked because sometimes being crazy gets people talking. So I'm conflicted about that. But at least that makes more sense to me than the bicycling thing. Like the bicycling thing seems like a joke (laughs) where they're like, you know what? Why not? All we have to do is print a couple posters and go to this weird event. Yeah. And people will take pictures and it'll be in them. It'll be funny, you know? Yeah, definitely. I am so curious what other people have to say as far as like how they view these campaigns and how type gets marketed to the masses. And I know we wanted to kind of mention a few other obvious ways that we've seen just as designers. And I don't think the obvious ways are necessarily bad ways, but everyone's got to market the font. I think it's interesting to start somewhere where it's just like, whoa, that's friggin' weird. Let's list some of the normal ways that you yeah. and I just brainstormed and, and know of, and then we can kind of compare it to the insanity of the things that we're just talking about. Of font catalogs have always been and still are a thing, which is a little weird to me that font catalogs are still a thing, but they are still a thing. Absolutely. I occasionally My- get mail from Dalton Mog. I don't even remember signing up. Do you, you know, really? But- that's amazing. But a catalog of, hey, here's a bunch of fonts that are either updated or new or just in our catalog that you might want to buy. Here's some examples of it. I wish I got more font catalogs whenever I have to like find a new font for a project. It actually seems like more efficient than scrolling through endless web pages sometimes. I guess I could see that. There was a foundry that had a really specific style and you knew you wanted something maybe a little bit offbeat or something. And you're like, maybe this is where I want to start looking for a font. Like, I feel like that'd be helpful to have like a physical catalog I could flip through. You know, especially if you're working in print. Yeah. Seeing it in print is drastically different than seeing it on the screen. So in that way, very useful. Agree. That's huge. Um, as you're putting a font catalog on your head. Yeah. I don't know why I did that. I was just seeing. For fun. Well, yeah. Font catalog. It's I don't have a font catalog on my head, but it is a design magazine from Typo One, who I think. I always forget what they do. They're like associated with FemType. They put out articles. I think they sell fonts too. This magazine was more an editorial piece rather than a place to sell their fonts. But there are print advertisements for different foundries in here, including Blaze Type, where they have a big blazetype.eu in one of their fonts and have some very fashion photos of someone wearing a flag with their fonts on them and a couple other foundries. So if you have like a design publication, I think foundries like to advertise there as well as digital publications. Fontsandnews.com always telling me who they're sponsored by when I'm on their website. True. You know, before we go into some broader places, I know microsites are huge. The the designed specimens designed for designers to purely enjoy and get excited about type with. I'd say like probably one of the more effective pieces of marketing. That's one difference between catalogs and you were just talking about editorial magazines that are targeted towards designers with advertisements in them those are potentially harder to reach for like an indie foundry 
like a, a maybe a mid tier where if you have the money to spend on advertising, yeah. then that's attainable. But a lot of people also don't have the money to spend. And so something like microsites and fonts in use are essentially free, but also advertising. I guess getting your stuff featured on fonts in use is like a free advertising. I'm also just talking about, they have like a little bar at the top that says like fonts in use is sponsored by, and actually there's usually bigger weight foundries that are like put their money to get their logo on there. But also if your font is used in a really cool project, you submit to fonts in use. Like I feel like that's a great way to put your stuff out there. Yeah, which I guess also relates to almost any design-related thing. If you are a type designer and also a designer, you could use your font in a project and try to get the project featured in something with a reference to your font somewhere. Yeah. Also, there are three more that I had wanted to bring up. One is marketplaces like Creative Market and stuff like that, like Envato and stuff like that, where there's tons of fonts. And it's almost like, I mean, it, I think it rarely costs money to put them in those places. It's more like if you sell something, they get a cut. But by having them in those places, people will find it by browsing yeah. or free SEO where people might find it from searching because that site gets tons of traffic in general where yours might not. Yeah. Um, and occasionally they'll like feature stuff too. So like marketplaces are in a way advertising and then i had brought up one that i was familiar with that you weren't super familiar with which was like deals sites like i was very familiar with mighty deals and i don't know why i guess maybe from my days of loving defont when i was a wee youngin it's very similar to on mighty deals specifically is like a lot of stuff where you would find it on a marketplace where they're not necessarily like the craziest font that you could imagine it's like usually kind of stylized and for a logo is the intention or something like that. But I'm sure you've seen what I'm talking about. If you go on a marketplace, you look for fonts and there's like 30 that look kind of similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the kind of thing that I mean where where like deal sites will like package those up and be like, get 30 fonts for $30, you know? Yeah. And that can be good advertising because A, people love a deal, but B... People are going to that thing and they probably get more traffic than you might individually. Yeah. I think all of these types of advertising appeal to like how you want your foundry or how you want you as a designer to be perceived too. Right. You know, if you're maybe concerned about being perceived as a really artful foundry, like you might not want to be on Mighty Deals, but that also might mean you have to put an extra time and effort to put into like a microsite or somewhere that doesn't have obvious visibility, but you're hoping to get people to talk about it just through the, like the sheer impressiveness of it. And I also feel like your font better match up to like whatever medium that you are choosing to put out into the world and use as marketing. I also think another obvious one is like swag. I think foundries, some of them will like sell specimen zines if they want to do like a small run of something or um, I know Ono Type Co and Studio Triple worked on a scarf together for DGS Steve, their font, which is so weird and unusual. But I also think that's like another way for people to also support you as a foundry and like have something a little unique. There's just like, I guess, so many ways in. Or you could be a Jonathan Heffler. That just occurred to me. I never thought about we used to sell those I am that quick brown fox shirt, right? Yeah. 
And for us, that was like, uh, hey, buy these and support us kind of thing. But it never occurred to me that a clever shirt by itself is a thing that people will buy. Yeah. So it just made me wonder if we put out a shirt just for the sake of what the shirt was, kind of in between advertising designers and this like crazy gorilla that we're talking about with the bicycling event. It's like selling some clever shirt to anybody who likes clever shirts, <laughs> but then making it clear that it's like typeset in this and from our foundry or whatever. So people maybe get introduced to the font from being interested in the clever shirt. That's fair. Never thought of it that way. I got to start wearing my leak shirt to design events. Start promoting Lee Spartan. That's potentially a thing. People liked that shirt, and I intentionally designed those shirts and the other ones that didn't sell as well of having a little colophon on the shirt of like, this is what it's set in. Yeah, it's never too late. I also just want to throw out the fact that Jonathan Heffler got a lot of probably great marketing for Heffler & Co. when he went on that Netflix show, Abstract. So, I mean, when you put it like that, like... It's not exactly available to all of us to like get on a Netflix show, you know. You could you could uh maybe have your font featured in the next Avatar movie and then they can make <laughs> right. a skit about it on SNL. Another opportunity. All press is good press for papyrus. But also, it's a fair point that I've always thought that open source was an opportunity for advertising yeah. too. You yeah, know, because it's mm -hmm. it's free and available and people get it and might learn who you are. And that's worked for a lot of people who have contributed to the league. Uh, St. Ostrich Sands is one of them, where we made Ostrich Sands. It was popular. And then Tyler, on his own site, went and made, like, Ostrich Pro, which was, mm -hmm. like, you know, a, a much more expanded version and slightly different design decisions than in the original Ostrich. Different enough that it, like, warranted being for sale. And I'm sure he's made some decent money from that. Absolutely. And same with Trey, right? Like Trey went into it from the opposite angle of, hey, I'm selling these fonts and I want to open source this one, mm -hmm. you know, started with the for sale ones that he was like ready to sell and then was like, yeah, you know, I'll take I'll take this one and I'll open source it and make it available to everybody. And then <coughs> and then everybody gets to see, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Drink that water, get that hydration, coat that throat. All right. So like, there's like a thousand ways to market something. If you think of a really unconventional way that you saw, I think we want to know. I sent out a blast on Twitter. No one responded. I appreciate everyone <laughs> that retweeted it. It's confusing. I know. But let us know. Very curious how, how the world will be ever evolving through our, our industry. Yeah. Fun to talk about. Good idea. All right. Till next week. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do.